All right, Jesse, last week was an epically long tale with so many twists and turns. What's the story this week? A man's shockingly deceitful double life results in the death of someone he vowed to love. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about broken hearts, false starts, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and leave a review to help some new people discover the show. Loving all of your reviews lately. Thank you guys all so much for helping propel the show up the charts and encouraging other people to try the show out. So we really appreciate it. It's so helpful that visibility is everything. You guys have no idea how much you're helping with that. So if you want to support the show in any other way or maybe more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. This week, as always, we are so, so excited to shout out a new amazing set of patrons. Morgan N., Natasha I., and Diane I., Jen L., Elizabeth O., Stacy B., Sorsha M., Amanda A., and Brandy T., Des and Shane, Maggie M., and Christy K., Cindy L., Rita S., and Michelle, Sarah R., Emily J., and Natalie F., and Shaniqua B., Hojo S and Sam D. Wow, what an incredible crew. That is awesome. Thank you guys all so much for joining the Patreon. We're also excited right now to say thank you to those who have already contributed to our October fundraising campaign for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Yep, this month is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So we're raising money for an organization that has done a ton of good and supported many, many people in need throughout all different times of their situation or challenges with domestic violence. Yes. And as part of that, well, it'll be last weekend. So technically it's tomorrow. Tomorrow I am (laughs) running a half marathon and Andy, you'll be running a 5K. And so will Heather and my husband and actually my dad, brother, and sister-in-law will also be running the 5K here in the Hudson Valley area. Amazing. So that's tomorrow. I'm like gearing up, guys. I'm really excited for that. However, when this episode comes out, it will be last weekend. So head on over to the Instagram. We'll be posting some pictures of us before or after we do our runs. And while you're there, if you would like to also help out, you can find links to donate on our Instagram profile or on our Facebook page. If you are interested in donating and you do not have social media, feel free to email us at lovers at lovemurder.love and we will get you a link so you can also contribute. I will not be running a half marathon, but I will be running the 5K portion and I will be doing it around the Rose Bowl, which is where I've ran all my other 5Ks in LA, just so everyone knows. Yes, unfortunately, Andy can't be with us for the official run, but I think next year we're going to get her trained up for a half marathon and she's going to do the full half with me. Yeah, that's wishful thinking, but I think I could do it once. (laughs) I think you could too. 
Honestly, if you start training just a few months ahead of time, I think you're already in great shape. So it would not be a stretch. And I think next year we'll probably start fundraising a little bit earlier. I heard actually a lot of more independent, smaller charities that we can potentially run for next year. That'd be great. We just have to do a little, yeah, a little bit more vetting. Whew. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for sticking with us for the long-winded Patreon and <laughs> charity fundraiser conversations. I'm really excited to get into today's episode. I got to tell you guys, we are on episode 172 of our main show episodes. And every once in a while, I'm like, are we going to run out of love murders? And then I come across one that's so crazy and somehow I have never heard of and seems like a very lesser known case. So I'm just thrilled to be able to bring you guys this case today. So excited. In September of 1991, Jane Miller took a deep breath. The last nine months of her life had been full of the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. She had found true love and been swept off her feet, only to find herself mired in confusion, pain, and what certainly seemed like lies. Lots and lots of lies. Jane didn't know whether to trust her heart or her head these days, but she thought she might hold the key to discovering the truth. In her shaking hand, Jane held a piece of paper with a Pennsylvania phone number on it. She steeled herself and then sighed, pressing the buttons on her phone. The phone rang once, twice, then three times. Jane didn't know whether she wanted the person on the other end of the line to answer or not. And finally, a woman's voice chirped hello. Uh, Jane said, hesitating. This is Jane Miller, David's wife. Who's this? There was a long pause on the other end of the line. And then finally, the other woman said, this is Dorothy Miller, David's wife. What? Yep. Today's story isn't just about double lives and double wives. It's also about mysterious millionaires, undercover CIA cruises, bizarre plots and schemes, and then sadly, eventually, murder. The man at the center of it all does some of the most shocking and completely ridiculous things that we've ever talked about on the show. Like some of the shit that we will be talking about coming out of this person's mouth will definitely have you say in some words, Andy, today. It makes me think of my sister-in-law. Sometimes when something's like crazy or somebody says something or does something wild, she sends me a meme that says the lion, the witch, and the audacity of that bitch. <laughs> but the bitch is David. But the bitch is David. Hey, it's 2023. Dudes can be bitches too. My primary source for this week's episode is Karen Kingsbury's book, Deadly Pretender, as well as an episode of A Lie to Die For, Season 1, Episode 8, and Deadly Sins, Season 2, Episode 7. Oh, you love that. I do. I love my cheesy reenactment shows, which is definitely what Deadly Sins is. But A Lie to Die For, I hadn't heard of before. It was on Oxygen. I downloaded it on Amazon Prime. And it's a very well done show. I liked A Lie to Die For. So let's rewind to some nine months before that devastating and revealing phone call. How do we get here? <laughs> Thank you. Yes. It was New Year's Day, 1991, and Jane's mood was hopeful. Jane Liebrick was a 33-year-old single mother of one teenage boy. She was a successful career woman in L.A., but her entire family was still located in the Orlando, Florida area. 
Now, Jane is spelled with a Y. Oh, yeah. Kind of like Jane Mansfield. And that was because she told friends she was no plain Jane. She was Jane with a Y. Got it. She was also beautiful, strong, opinionated, very confident. She was a bright and outgoing person who had always had some great people skills and charm from a very young age. The only thing that really eluded Jane was true love. She had fallen in love with her high school sweetheart and had gotten pregnant her senior year of high school. And shortly after graduation, they got married and then they had their baby. So they were together for a little while. They tried to stay together for years after and raise their son, Michael. But eventually they did grow apart, as one does occasionally when you get together rather young. And they end up getting divorced. Shortly thereafter, Jane remarried. But that relationship, it seemed like maybe it was more of a rebound type relationship. And that marriage ended very quickly. So in 1984, Jane was 26 years old. She had gotten a degree from University of Florida. And she was ready to launch her career. She ended up working as a purchaser. Like a buyer, probably. Yes, like a buyer. That's essentially what it is. Yeah. And she got a great job offer in Los Angeles. But that came with some trade-offs. Her son was then nine years old, and he did not want to leave his dad and his entire family to go across the country and all of his friends and and everything. So they ended up working out a deal that Michael's father would keep him from the school year, and then he would spend all of his vacations, including his like three-month summer vacation, with his mom in Los Angeles. Yeah, I know some people who did that. Yeah, I have to mention this because for some reason, we had one show where the mother didn't have primary custody and people were saying like that we were making excuses for the mother like not being there for their child, but there was no abuse. There was no sign that she had been a delinquent mother. This is not Jane's case either. I think it's really crazy that if this was the opposite situation, if it was the dad who didn't have primary custody, but just had the kids like every holiday and all three months of their school vacation, they'd be like, what a great dad. Yeah, we need to normalize the dad taking care of the child. That's okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's okay if the father has primary custody, if there's a career situation or there's a reason it's closer to family or it just works out better for the kid. I don't think we have to villainize women who don't have primary custody of their children. I mean, I personally think it would be very difficult. Like I'm sympathetic because I probably could not. (laughs) Well, also, there's women who are active duty military that don't have a choice as well. There's a lot of mothers who I'm sure that would like it to be otherwise, but for their career, for whatever it is, even if you just travel every week for your career, which many women do. But I think ultimately, if it was the guy. We're not making excuses for anyone other than you can be whatever type of mother you want. And it doesn't mean you're negligent in any capacity unless you are literally a negligent mother. (laughs) Yeah, or abusive. Abusive. And that was not Jane's case. Obviously, she had a great relationship with Michael. He's actually on the show A Lie to Die For talking about his mother in in a very warm and loving way. So it sounds like it was actually a very hard decision, but she was trying to do her best to make her son happy and keep him in an environment that he was thriving in and also do well in her own career. And it did seem to pay off. By the early 1990s, she was making the modern day equivalent of almost $160,000 a year. Get it, girl? Yeah. Jane had found herself professionally in L.A., and she had also met her very best friend, a woman named Jody, who became basically like a sister to her. Aww. But what she hadn't found over the last almost six years in California was love. In general, Jane was getting pretty tired of the dating scene in L.A. and being so far away from her family, 
especially her son, who was getting older and she was realizing like very shortly was going to go off to college and start his own life and career. Also, her siblings and her parents still lived in Orlando. So she told Jody that she was looking for a change. And she was really, really ready at 33 years old to meet a lasting love and to settle down and maybe live closer to her son as he got a little older. The two women had joked that maybe she would meet Mr. Wonderful on her Christmas 1990 trip back home to Florida to be with her family. But it wasn't really a joke. It's kind of like you're making a joke, but you hope it will come true. Because Jane also had a strong intuition that something big, something good was going to happen to her on this trip as well. Well, it didn't happen during the trip, but rather when she was on her way home. On the flight? On the flight, she boarded her early morning New Year's Day 1991 flight and found a dark-haired businessman sitting in her seat. Huh. Mm -hmm. So she asked him to move over so that she could be in her rightful seat. Yeah, get out of my seat, dude. <laughs> and struck up a conversation. The man was named David Miller, and he quickly scooted over to the correct seat. He was seven years older than Jane, about 40 years old, and he wasn't conventionally super-duper attractive, but he had a self-assuredness, confidence, and intelligence that was very attractive to Jane. Well, obviously not smart enough to sit in the right seat, huh? <laughs> Maybe it was a ploy. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe he was hoping it was a cute girl and she'd tell him to shove over. Well, for his part, David was dazzled with Jane. She was very pretty and she was also very confident. He could tell that she was a woman who had her shit together. She just had that vibe about her. And there was this kind of mischievous, flirtatious way she had of like volleying with him right away that showed that she was kind of fun, a little mischievous. There's a spirit there. So he was taken with her right away as well. And the two ended up chatting for the entire flight, which is about five hours. That's nice because I don't think they had like TVs and seats back then. They needed the entertainment even if they weren't falling in love. <laughs> so over the many hours, I'm also imagining that they're getting like in-flight Bloody Marys or something. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> they talked candidly about work. David was an attorney and Jane a buyer or purchaser. But they also got into some very personal topics, like Jane's son and her two failed marriages. David told her about the roller coaster that had been his life lately. So she was thinking she already had a pretty dramatic life. But he explained that he had grown up in a small Ohio town. He had married his college sweetheart, but the two had divorced, so they bonded over that. And then he said, that he didn't have any kids, though he'd like to, if it was still a possibility. And he told Jane that he had lost his father recently. It happened in 1986. So that's about five years earlier at this point. And he said that two huge things happened to him right after he lost his father. So basically three things. Number one was that he found out that his father had so much more money than he had ever realized. Okay. So his dad had always lived pretty frugally, so he had no idea that his dad was worth millions of dollars until after his death. Wow, that's trippy. Yeah, so he said that he had inherited $14 million. <sighs> From what? His dad was like always in business, but he just had no idea that that's how much money he had. So he said that while he was still trying to reconcile 
having that much money and that his dad had had that much money his entire life and he didn't know about it. He said he was also hit with another huge thing, which was that he started feeling really, really sick and he thought it was grief at the beginning. And then he started going to the doctors and it turns out he had pancreatic cancer. David does. David did. Yeah, he did. So he said that he was told that he had about a year to live. And at that point, he was trying to get into experimental trials to see if they could cure, put his cancer in remission. But while he was waiting, he ended up just traveling and blowing a shit ton of this inheritance money. He said that he managed to burn through $10 million in one year. I am smelling a liar. (laughs) Even without the hints from the beginning of the episode, I think. Wow. Is she buying this? Yes. And by all accounts, David was very convincing. So we are listening to this much after the fact. Hindsight is 2020. Of course. And she like wanted that love. She wanted something exciting. She wanted something different, somebody who had a different life and crazy story. The only thing that like gets me about this is that he says he burns through $10 million. And unless Karen Kingsbury already did the inflation, which I don't know if she did, that is more like $22 or $23 million in today's money. Yeah. Unless you are literally buying a Bel Air estate or something or a Malibu estate like in one go, that is very hard to blow through, I think. Like if you're just traveling. Yeah. Like why why does he have anything to show for it is what I would ask. Like it's like, okay, well, yeah, anyone could spend $22 million, but you should have like homes and cars to show for it. I mean, hopefully. Just be like, poof, gone. Yeah, I'm not like giving her a hard time about believing him. I'm giving him a hard time about lying. Yes, exactly. Like he went a little overboard. Let's just go with it. Let's roll with it. Let's put ourselves in Jane's head. I'm rolling. I just wanted to throw that out there. So on the tail end of this spending spree, now he's telling her all this on the plane. He was crying for part of it. He seemed very emotional about it. David's doctors were able to get him into an experimental trial and the medicine and the treatment program thankfully worked and his cancer was in remission. Okay. So David said that he, at that point, had $4 million left, which would be more like $9 million in 2023 money. And he had decided to invest that and go back to work as an attorney, which he said is what he had been doing for the last six months since he got a clean bill of health. By the time they landed at LAX, it felt like Almost no time had passed. Like the five hours had just flown by because they had been in such deep conversation. But it also felt like they had known each other forever. He was also telling her like, I've never told anyone this stuff. Like there's just something about you that gets me to open up to you. So when they stood to get off the plane, David asked Jane to dinner. She, of course, said yes. This was the most fascinating man she's ever met who also happens to be a multimillionaire. And a whirlwind romance began. Also, in the Lifetime movie, which I will talk about at the end of the show, they were in first class. I'm also imagining them in first class because otherwise you'd be like, uh, why are you a multimillionaire flying coach? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm also imagining that they're like in first right now too. And David really did put his money where his mouth was. Over the next few weeks, he would take her on vacations. He would always pick her up in a stretch limo, which was such a thing in 1991. 
We used to always take a limo to the airport from my grandparents' house. Really? Yeah, from their house in um, Hoffman Estates in Illinois. We would, like, go drive to their house in Inverness, and then we would, like, all get in a limo and go to O'Hare. Oh, my gosh. Well, so I remember my parents, because we're, my, where I grew up was near the Saratoga racetrack. And so once a year, my parents would rent a stretch limo to take all of their friends to the track all dressed up. So fun. Obviously, the kids didn't get to go, but when the limo came, we'd all get in it and like play in it and pretend we were going somewhere. And then we'd get kicked out for the babysitter so they could leave. (laughs) So fun. But I remember it was like, it felt like, you know, like Home Alone 2 when he has the limo and everything. It felt like the height of wealth. So funny. I think it was just the most convenient form of transportation to O'Hare for us. <laughs> With a lot yeah. of people, yeah. <laughs> you have a ton of people. That's like, that's what you're going to do. So he had like a stretch limo, but like just for the two of that's them. That's wild. But like so hot. It's so hot. And he would like, he was sending her these like crazy beautiful floral arrangements, like almost on the daily. They were going to like the best restaurants. And we're talking LA. So we're talking Beverly Hills, like the early 90s, like the Ivy. The ivy was very statusy, and so she's seeing all of this. He's also giving her jewelry as presents, like super early. It obviously seemed like this guy had more than enough money to burn. Maybe that's how he went through the twenty-two million dollars so fast, renting a stretch limo every day, <laughs> every single freaking day. But there was one piece of jewelry that held the most meaning for Jane, and that was a big old engagement ring. Within. Six weeks of meeting, the two were engaged, and then they got married on February 16th in Las Vegas. Still in my spot. Still in your spot, and they did it specifically because it was two days after Valentine's Day. But, like, that's nuts. You meet on January 1st, and you are married by February 16th. Yeah. That's even crazy in my Too Fast book. Which is all big off, flame and red flag. Huge, huge red flag here. I think it was also a huge flag that she didn't have to sign a prenup. With all that money, you'd think that there would have been a prenup in play. Yeah, but let me just, like, wager that there might not be (laughs) that money. I just had to guess. Just maybe. Seeing as how things are going to end up in less than nine months from the time they're meeting, things are not going to get better here. So the one thing that was, like, weird about when they got engaged was that he had told her he was a practicing attorney. And then right around the time that they got engaged and he introduced her to his business associates, he's like, I am an attorney, but I also have my own lobbying business. So she was kind of like, that's weird. Why did you not tell me you owned your own business? Because that's great. And he's like, oh, I, I just told you so much about the money and my cancer. And I didn't want to like also be like, and I'm a business owner because that would be unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah. Because the other details aren't unbelievable, (laughs) sir. (laughs) Yeah. So she's like, oh, well, that's cool. And so she had met people at David Miller and Associates, which was his lobbying practice, like political lobbying. She had met all of his colleagues. Everyone was very surprised. They said that they had never met any girlfriend of David's before. And all of a sudden he's straight up getting married. So that was bananas to everybody. But it all seemed above board and legit. And Jody came out. That was her best friend. She was the maid of honor at the wedding. And she said that David really did seem like the real deal. Everything that he did, all of his actions, they all made sense. Everything was verifiable. There was no reason to think that he wasn't being totally honest with Jane at the time that they got married. David had an extraordinary story, but it all seemed to check out. And 
Jane was so happy and Jody was so happy for her. They both really thought that the third time was going to be the charm for Jane, finally. And life with David was getting better. Only a week or two after getting married, David revealed that Disney had offered him an in-house attorney position in their main headquarters in Orlando. So like Disney World Disney. He could maintain his business in California by having his business partner basically take over operations and he would still just get some sort of payment from what was going on, but he wouldn't get paid for actively running the place. And he thought that this actually would be very exciting for both of them because he could take this job, he would be excited to work within the Disney Corporation, and Jane could be near her family. That'd be awesome. Yes. And they were talking about buying basically a mansion. And they were saying that Michael could come live with them. And that was really exciting because Michael, I think, was about to turn 16 at this time. And he only has a couple more years to be home. And she would love if he would end his high school career living with her. Yeah, that'd be so sweet. So this seems great. And it all happened really, really, really fast. They had only known each other for about two months by the time they're already married and talking about moving to Orlando. So again, there's trade-offs here because she had obviously built a really strong business in L.A., but her friend Jody did say, because Jody's also on the show, that she was kind of ready for a transition. She was 33. She'd been working her ass off for six years. And she was ready to devote herself more to family time, to spending time with Michael, maybe even having another baby. She's still young. And she decided that even though she had to give up the business she'd been working at for six years, she could always start something else up in Florida when she decided she was ready for that. But for now, especially given that David had so much money, she could go establish a home, be home for Michael, give him what he needed, you know, get to know her husband and figure out what the next stage was going to be for her. So Jody was going to miss her, of course, but Jody was also with the man that she was about to marry as well. So it seemed like she was going to be branching off and getting married and starting her own family too. And so she wanted that for her friend, even if it meant her best friend had to be across the country. We know how that goes. Yeah. (laughs) Just because your best friend is across the country doesn't mean you can't talk all the time. (laughs) All day, every day. All day, every day, and then start a podcast together so you have business reasons to talk all day, every day. (laughs) So this all seemed great. And Jane thought, of course, that her parents, Richard and Janice, were going to be through the roof about this development. She's marrying a attorney millionaire who is going to be working for Disney, moving back to where the whole family lives in the greater Orlando area. They were happy that Jane was coming back, of course. But they didn't think that anyone, anyone in the world should be getting married after only six weeks. And certainly not Jane, who already had two failed marriages behind her. They were kind of like, hey, you've already done this twice. Maybe there's no rush. Maybe you guys should just wait. But obviously... Jane did not heed that advice. They also, of course, didn't love the fact that Jane had quit her job. So now she was financially dependent upon this new husband that they knew almost nothing about. They didn't even get to meet him until after they were married. I wonder if like marriages end up being like tattoos, you know, like the first one's like really (laughs) intense and like you're really like, oh my God, is this the one that I want? It's a huge weight. And then all of a sudden after like a couple, you're like, whatever. (laughs) I wonder that too. I've heard of people who go into their second marriage 
very seriously as well. Like I've already had one failed marriage. I'm not going to do this again. This is a lot of pressure. This is my one and only. Now I'm done. It was just the first time was a fluke. And they take the second one. But I feel like once you're like in the third, fourth, fifth range, I'm just like, you maybe you're like, eh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> It'll work out or it doesn't. I'm just an eternal optimist and romantic. <laughs> so funny. It's like always crazy to me when I hear about celebrities getting married like five, six, seven, eight times. I think Liz Taylor was married eight times. A lot of weddings. A lot of weddings. Man. I imagine people are like, I am not buying any more fucking dishes for this person. You get nothing. How dare you send me your bridal <laughs> They registry. have like the most obscure <laughs> kitchen necessities. <laughs> From eight marriages, all mixed patterns. <laughs> so David wanted to win Jane's parents over. And he said that he had done some political work with the government of Kuwait and that they wanted to treat his family to a European vacation because of all the work he had done for them. And also, Jane's father is like, isn't that like political bribery? Like, do you really get to accept presents from a foreign government? And he was like, no, 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 no. This is like how they avoid making it look like they're giving me any sort of payment because they're just treating us to a vacation. So he was trying to impress Jane's parents, but Jane's parents were like, this is a little bit, it still seems a little sketchy to us. We don't know what the deal is. But he's like, I'm going to bring you guys. I'm going to bring Jane's sister. I'm going to bring her son, obviously. I'm taking care of everything. So they're planning that trip. They also took a very fancy cruise in like one of the like super like deluxe suites that they have on the cruise, like not the normal cabins, but like the really fancy ones with the balconies and the beautiful views and like two stories and stuff. So they had taken this like honeymoon cruise already. Also, he had taken Jane and her father, and I think Michael came with them too, to tour these very fancy houses in an upscale neighborhood in the Orlando area called Heathrow. And apparently there were like some huge, beautiful mansions in the area, and they found one that they loved that was brand new construction. This is also 1991, so I'm just imagining it's like a big old McMansion. New construction, greater Orlando area. Intercoms. 1991. <laughs> Intercoms everywhere. My house was built in 1990, and it is like intercoms everywhere. The like carpeted basement rec room situation. The big <laughs> like oval window that all of those houses had. Or like, what is it called? Arch window? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I'm imagining. But they found a house that was gorgeous. It was like 3,500 square feet, brand new, and they went into contract with it. He paid a down payment. They were in contract. So all of a sudden, Jane's dad is like, huh, well, this guy seems a little fishy, but he can clearly afford this. They also went furniture shopping. They bought $11,000 of furniture for the house that they had the furniture company just store until they were ready to move in, which is more like $25,000 in today's money. So Jane's family was like, okay, maybe this guy is legit. He's definitely spending like he has a lot of money for sure. It's not furnishing the whole house for like $2,000 like me at Ikea. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> We're like, uh, a little bit different over here. Yeah, we did not spend that much money furnishing our house at all, even remotely. I mean, honestly, for the first like three months, we had a Walmart folding table as our kitchen table. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, I mean, you just, that's, you have to make those adjustments when you're buying a home. 
usually yeah. if you don't have an egregious amount of money like this guy's seeming like he does. Yeah, you have to like you buy the house and then you trickle in the furniture like room by room because that's all you can afford every month. Yeah, so that was different. However, Jane's sister, I think she worked as a legal assistant or a paralegal or something. So she had a sense of how the legal world worked. And she was able to look people up who were members of the Florida Bar Association. Yeah, you can do that in any state if you work in that field. And David was not listed Uh, as being. I love that she looked him up. She looked him up and she was like, this is very screwed up, but... I know your husband is like taking us on this big trip and he seems great and everything, but he is not listed as anywhere. I can't find any record of him going to law school or anything. And so David told Jane that it was just because he hadn't yet passed the bar in Florida. So he still had to take the bar exam because he was licensed in California, but not Florida. So she believes him, of course. She's like, Okay, well, I'm sorry. My family is being crazy. And he's like, it's okay. That's like where we're going to take them to this beautiful trip to Europe. And also, if you are worried, sweetie, why don't you just come by the Disney office right now and you can see my office? And she was like, huh, that would actually make me feel better. So he went and he actually picked her up. They came back. They parked in the Disney employee lot. And then he took her right into the building. They went to an office that said David Miller on the door. They walked into his office. And there's a photo of them, like their wedding photo, right on his desk. So she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I have been so crazy. I can't believe I doubted you. I'm so sorry. So they take off for this European vacation. Now, everything was paid for, all the airline tickets, all the hotels, everything. However, the first night, they get a restaurant bill that was pretty sizable because David had been ordering really fancy wines and really going to town with this menu and his credit card gets declined because they're in Europe. Yes. And then the restaurant doesn't believe that he has the funds because this was back in the day where you could call the credit card company and say, is this really supposed to be declined? And they were like, he has no money. Do not let him (laughs) use another credit card because he is maxed out. And so the restaurant is trying to say, no, we won't take any of your credit cards. We don't believe that you have the money. And he's like, this is ridiculous. So he had to go to his father-in-law and say, hey, do you have any cash? Because they won't take any of my credit cards. Yikes. Father at this point is like, ugh, okay. This is very sketchy, but it's so confusing because he had paid for everything else. Or the Kuwaiti government had paid for it, which is what he had been alleging. Yeah, but that's also like so weird. It's also weird. And the other weird thing was that this guy from the Kuwaiti government was supposed to show up to meet them and say thank you to David and be their unofficial tour guide and let them know if they if they needed anything. And he never showed up. So this guy never showed up. And now his credit card is having problems. Jane was embarrassed and she was confused. And they got into a fight and David went out and he got completely wasted. So she doesn't know where he is. And then he comes back drunk. There was another thing, too. He had at one point told her that he had been an interpreter, a Spanish interpreter for President Nixon at one point, but they were in Spain and he was not speaking Spanish. (laughs) He was like saying he didn't understand it. And she was like, I thought you were literally a Spanish interpreter. And he's like, oh, it's a different dialect. So there's all these things not adding up. Yeah, but if you're like literally an interpreter, you can get by. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like we know it's a different dialect. Senor. 
<laughs> Senor Liar Liar Pants and Fuego. Pantalones and Fuego. <laughs> so she's like, this is just really weird. So he comes back wasted. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I lied to you. I paid for everything. The government of Kuwait did not pay for this trip. It was just me putting it on our, my credit card. And she was like, but why would you say that? That's such a weird thing to lie about. And he's like, I just wanted to impress your family. I wanted them to think I was politically connected and important somehow. And I thought that that would impress them more than me just paying for a trip. And she's like, no, it's just really weird. And now I feel like I'm, I don't know that much about you because you didn't tell me about your lobbying business and how you weren't really a practicing attorney. And there's all this sketchiness around like whether you're actually a member of the Florida bar and you don't speak Spanish. <laughs> yes. And you don't actually speak Spanish. Which is so weird. Why would he bring them to Spain if he doesn't speak Spanish? It's weird. Yeah. They ended up getting in like a huge fight to the point where her dad came in because her mom and dad were on the next room over and they could hear them fighting. And this was the first indication that David got very angry when called out on his shit and also that he was clearly lying to her. She was already growing suspicious, but when they got home, the house that they were under contract for fell through. And then another house fell through. So stuff just kept happening. So one time he's like, oh, our dream house was built on swampland. And when they did the survey, they said we cannot, in a few years, it's going to be underwater if there's another hurricane. So we can't buy that house. And then she got a phone call that the funds had not gone through. They were supposed to put a down payment down to secure the home. And the real estate agent called her and said, hey, the money never hit. So they're going with the next offer. You're losing the house. And she was like, what the hell, David? Why didn't you send them the money? And he's like, oh, I had some things to straighten out. Well, I didn't really like the house anyway. She's living in this tiny apartment and she's been promising her son that they were going to get this house and live there together. And she's getting more and more frustrated about this because she's talking to Jody now and Jody's back in California saying, well, honey, like, is it possible? He's not really a millionaire. Yeah. And she's like, but that doesn't make any goddamn sense because he took me on this like crazy Bahamas cruise. He paid for my whole family. And other than that first night with the credit card situation, he took care of everything. So where is he getting the money to do this? But he doesn't have the money to buy us a house. In April of 1991, David left for a business trip ostensibly to California. That's where he said he was going. But he didn't contact Jane for four whole days. Four whole days, she had no idea where he was, what was going on, why he wasn't talking to her. Any sort of business trip, he'd be able to call her from a hotel, obviously. Yeah. And while David was away, the furniture store reached out to Jane to let her know because she had called the furniture store about making sure that they were still holding her furniture because obviously it was taking a lot longer to get a house than they thought. And they were like, oh, no, we've actually processed a return because your husband called us and said that he didn't have the funds to buy the furniture anymore. So when he came home, she was upset that he had been gone for so long without talking to her. But also, she'd been trying to reach him to figure out what the hell was going on with the furniture. And he said, well, we had picked out that furniture based on the first house. And I don't think it's going to go necessarily in every home that we look at. So I just wanted to cancel it to get ahead of it because there's no use in paying that money and it just sitting there if we're not even going to keep the furniture. And she's like, well, why did you tell them we didn't have any money? And he's like, it's the only way that they would let me return it. Otherwise, we wouldn't get a full refund. So she's like, uh-huh. So the inconsistencies kept piling up until Jane asked her sister Debbie to help her find out whether David actually worked at Disney. Because one of Jane's other friends said that there was no way 
that Disney was going to pay somebody $90,000 a year, which was reportedly what he said he was making after one interview. What was his role there again? He was supposed to be an in-house attorney. So he was working in legal. And Jane had actually called the bank and they said that while there was money coming into David's account, it seemed like it was coming from his lobbying business and not from Disney. He wasn't getting any checks that seemed directly from Disney. Even though she had at this point seen his office, she was very confused about what was actually going on and she didn't trust him anymore. So Debbie made some calls and found out that no one at Disney had ever heard of Jane's David Miller or a man of that description, like 40-ish attorney had just been hired like a month earlier. The only David Miller who worked at Disney was a much, much older, semi-retired executive who was balding and very rarely came into the office. That was his office mm-hmm. that he just brought a picture into. Wow. He's pulling a Steven Spielberg. Wait, what did Steven Spielberg do? It's been a long time since I've heard this story, but he like literally faked it until he made it. Like he like used, he was an intern or something and he used an exec's office to either write in or to like place scripts in until (laughs) something got like picked up. I mean, you got to be scrappy, but not when you're tricking your wife. Don't be scrappy. No, that's that's just (laughs) lying. I mean, Steven Spielberg did it the right way. He was the OG. So Jane was horrified and shocked by this. She confronted David that night, but he was like, oh, of course they don't have me on the records. I'm an independent contractor. That's how they hired me. Yeah, but they have your name on the door. Yeah. He's like, they have a nice office for me. I go there and I work, but they pay me as a contractor, not salary, which also didn't make any sense because he had told her that he made $90,000 salary. So do independent contractors get salaries? No. It's usually they get paid for the length of their contract. Like a 1099, whatever. Yeah. Jane's too smart for all of this and she's confused. But he was very good at making everything make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was telling her so many different things, some of which were very true, that she was getting confused on what he had actually told her before. Or he'd say something like, well, I already told you this, babe. And she'd be like, did he tell me this before? So now her head is kind of swimming because she can't remember what he actually told her before versus what he's saying now, what part of the story had changed. So everything is confusing. And while she's in the midst of questioning him, he's like, surprise, also, I have a house. I never even told you this, but years and years ago, I had a serious girlfriend named Dorothy, and the two of us owned a home together. We have long since broken up. We've been broken up for a decade, and now we have tenants that live in the house, and it's just a rental property to make some money. However, the tenants stopped paying the rent. So I'm going to kick them out and then we can go live in this house because I already own it outright. But is it in California? No, it's in it's in Florida. So this was another like question for her because she remembers when she first met him, which at this point was only like five or six months earlier, <laughs> that when he was leaving Orlando, he said that he had been visiting his sister who owned a dress shop in Orlando, but she had yet to meet the sister and he had failed to mention that he had once lived in the Orlando area. So they went to go see this house. It was in a nearby town called Castleberry. And it was fine. It was like a cute house. It wasn't like these mansions they were looking at, but it was definitely a great place to live considering they were holing up in a tiny apartment at this point. So she was like excited about it. She was like, it's kind of strange. It looked like the people had left in the middle of the night because there was still somebody's stuff all over the house. So they would have to get rid of that. 
But in general, she was excited that they were finally moving into a house while they looked for their forever house. And then that fell through too. He said that the tenants had paid their rent and they were moving back in because they had an agreement. So she's like, what the hell is going on? And things were getting even worse because Jane found out that she was pregnant. Oh, no. Jesse, I'm really excited to talk about today's sponsor, Honey Love. Yep, it's such a joy to have a company with products that we love so much sponsor the show. Absolutely. Listeners, probably a lot of you have tried all sorts of shapewear. We'll also bet that many of you think about it as occasional necessary evil rather than something you really enjoy. But Honey Love is something totally different. This company has revolutionized compression technology so you no longer have to feel like you're suffocating while wearing effective shapewear. Honey Love's best-selling Superpower Short is a total go-to of mine. It has targeted compression technology that distinguishes between areas you want more support versus areas you need less compression. It's designed to work with your body and not against it. Another thing you don't have to worry about is Honey Love items rolling down, which is basically unheard of in shapewear. That's thanks to flexible boning that's hidden in the side seams. Yeah, this is so important. I really, truly do not know how they do it because (laughs) I have tried on every type of shapewear available, especially after having two kids. And this is one where you feel tucked in, you feel secure, but it's also not uncomfortable and it's not like popping out in other weird areas. I mean, who among us... (laughs) hasn't been at a wedding or a special event and you're in the bathroom trying to take off a piece of shapewear (laughs) and then tuck everything back in when you're done? Well, Honey Love solves that problem with a 100% cotton gusset so you can skip the extra undies, plus a convenient opening that means you're not pulling the whole darn thing off and putting it back on. Well, the bathroom line is out the door. So nice. I feel like at so many occasions too after having a kid I'm like out at an event and it's just like I wish that I had had the shaper on you know like I'm like oh my goodness I really feel (laughs) that would have come in handy yeah it's not about changing your shape it's kind of accentuating what you already have and giving you just a little more support I mean If you guys have had babies, you know what I'm talking about. There's just like a little, it's just a little softer. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a totally different type of body after you have a baby. No matter how fit you are, it always is helpful having that shapewear underneath. And it's just, like you said, sculpting what you already have there. I do think that they do such a spectacular job. I'm working in retail and apparel. I've seen and tried on so many different types of shapewear and seen so many on shoots. And it's just this product is spectacular. I also love that it comes with the free travel laundry bag as well. Mm-hmm. That's so nice. What it comes down to is this. Shapewear shouldn't be hard. Their products make you look good and feel good. Whether it's for a wedding, event, or an everyday boost of confidence, Honey Love is the perfect plus one. Treat yourself to the best shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com lovemurder. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off honeylove.com slash lovemurder. Andy, there are so many people out there doing everything they can to create the best possible lives for themselves and their families and still finding themselves with money challenges simply because of the way that paychecks are distributed. It's so sadly true. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earnin. 
Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. This product just makes so much sense to me as a way to give people more choice and more control. It's a way for people to be more self-sufficient without falling into debt traps and other modern financial challenges. Honestly, life is absolutely difficult enough without having to worry about the logistical timing of when your paycheck is going to land. Agree. <laughs> so make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability and security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Love Murder under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Love Murder under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. So she didn't even tell him, though, that she was pregnant because by the time she found out she was pregnant, she was pretty sure she was going to leave him and she was going to raise the baby by herself. She had already been a single mom before. She was like, I can do it again. I just don't think I can raise a baby with this person who is lying to me so much. So Jane told David that she was moving out to live with her grandmother who lived in the area. At the time, her grandmother was actually on vacation, but she knew where the key was. So she and Michael could go to her grandmother's house and live there until she figured out either she was getting back together with David and they were going to straighten things out or if she was going to move back to California and move in with Jody. Yep. Okay. So she has to figure that all out. And she tells David at that point that she needed some time and space and figure out whether she can actually mend this marriage in any way. So David cried and he begged her to stay. He also at that point tearfully admitted that he had lied about being a millionaire. Oh, really? Yeah. He says, actually, it wasn't a lie that I inherited all that money. It was just a lie that I had any of it left. I actually spent it all. Well, then you're reckless. Yes. She said, honey, look, money doesn't make you special. Being a good and honest person makes you special. And you've now lost that in my eyes. I'm not leaving you because you don't have any money. I'm leaving you because you've lied to me over and over and over again. Yeah, get the picture. It's not about the money. So he's hysterically crying. He's begging her not to go. And she's like, I'm sorry, I'm going. And she takes her bag and she goes to put it in her car. And in her trunk are a bunch of guns in like black cases. She's like, where the hell did all these guns come from? Because also... He had mentioned maybe getting a gun for protection at one point. And she said, no, absolutely not. I will not have weapons in my home. So they had decided together and she had said no guns. And then he must have gone to buy them with her car because they're all in her trunk. So she goes back into the home. How many guns? It was like four or five of all different sizes. So gross. She's scared too because she doesn't know who he is. And now he has all these guns. And so the trippy thing is that she goes right back up into the apartment to, like, ask him about the guns. And remember, he had been, like, crying and begging. And when she walks back in, he is, like, unemotionally watching TV. Yeah, crocodile No response. So he turns around. He's like, oh, did you decide to give me a second chance? And he starts, like, trying to put on the show again. And she's like, uh, stop that right now because I'm really freaking pissed at you. Like, why are there a bunch of guns in my trunk? 
of my car. And also, what are you doing buying guns when we said we weren't going to have any? And also, you say you're broke. You say you don't have any money that you've run up all of our credit cards. But yet, guns cost money. They're not cheap. Did they have joint credit cards? It wasn't like her money. It was like essentially like his money. But he's like, I'm all out of money. Yep. Okay, got it. So it just kind of is like that was supposed to be part of their marital assets. That's what he promised her when they got married. So I say are generally. But like I think it was just his. Okay, cool. And he got very angry with her. He like stormed out. He grabbed his guns from her car. He said it was none of her business that he needed them for protection. They're in her car. Yeah. So it is her business. They're in her car. So at that point, she was shaking because she doesn't know this man or what he's capable of anymore. So she goes to her grandmother's house and her son's there. And that evening, David came by and she went to the back bedroom and she told Michael to tell David that she was sleeping and not to come in. But David was absolutely irate with anger. And he told Michael, you can't tell me I can't see my wife. That's my wife. And he pushed past the teenager and he went into the back room and he started fighting with Jane about they were going to be together. She needed to listen to him. He had done everything for her. He had gone broke trying to impress her and her parents and she was being ungrateful. And she's a tough cookie. So she starts fighting back. And all of a sudden, David, so this is trigger warning for domestic violence. David starts choking her. He starts putting his hands on her throat and choking her out. So Michael runs in and he is trying to pull David off his mother. And he's getting kind of successful. Like he'll push him and knock him off balance. But then like he's possessed. David goes right back for Jane's throat. So poor Michael runs out to the hall and he calls 911 from a landline there. And when David heard Michael place the call, because he said, please hurry, please send someone. This man is killing my mother. He apparently seethed to Jane, look what you're doing to me, Jane. And then he just left. He peaced out. And Jane had some very bad bruises around her throat as a result of this near-death experience. Shortly after this attack, Jane also suffered a miscarriage. I mean, stress. Yeah. That was it for Jane. That situation in and of itself. Also, probably, like, you don't want any ties to this psychopath. I mean, I think that she would have raised that baby far away from him. And I think she very much wanted this baby. But this was just, it was a sign. Yes. It was a sign to her very much that this man had lied to her. He had put her in a position where she left her job where she put her own child and her own life in danger, Michael, her existing child. And then also, beyond just trying to kill her, he had also put her in a situation where she lost the baby that was inside of her as well. And traumatized her teenage son. Absolutely. So she was done at this point. Jane moved all of their belongings into a storage unit. And also, he had gone away too after this. I don't know if he was afraid of the police or something. She couldn't get a hold of him even if she wanted to get a hold of him. So she just left a message and said, hey, I'm putting all of our stuff in storage. I'm moving everything out of this apartment because we don't want to pay the lease on this anymore because she knew she was moving. So she moved all of their stuff into a storage unit and she started making plans to move back to L.A. And she was going to move in with Jody while she figured out what the next step, if she was going to go back to her same job, figure out her life. But like this whirlwind romance had just taken over and destroyed her whole life in a matter of months. 
there was a fleeting second during this period of time that Jane had thought maybe she could patch things up with David. He had, of course, come back to her. He was super contrite, as abusers often are. Mm-hmm. He had also dropped off all of his guns with her father for safekeeping because she said, I'm not even entertaining an idea of getting back together with you until I know that you don't have any weapons anywhere because I don't trust you right now. And so he dropped off all of the weapons with her dad. But of course, she couldn't know for sure whether that was really all of his guns. No. If he had four or five just sitting in the back of her car. Yeah. So she knows that the ones that she at least saw were accounted for. But who knows what else he has going on for him at this point. There was this like brief period of time where they were maybe going to try to patch it up. But then she caught him in another lie. He said he was going to California on business for his lobbying business. And she said, okay, well, call me when you get home, of course. And she was driving with, I think it was her sister or another friend, and literally saw him driving down the road. Like they were stopped at a stoplight and he pulled like right next to her. And she said she was staring at him. And that was the first time she was actually scared was because he looked at her with this like, he saw her. Yeah, he saw her and she knew he saw her and he looked at her with this like insane look of hatred. And she thought, oh my God, he's going to kill me. She was like, that's it. And he like squealed the tires, like drove away and she was so freaked out. She had her friend pull over and she was like, I just saw David and he's not supposed to be here. He told me he was going to be in California and I'm like really freaked out. And so later he did call her and he acted like everything was fine. And she's like, what is wrong with you? I saw you. I saw you look at me and you're, I caught you in another lie yet again. And he's like, I came home early to surprise you. But then I saw that you were going out and meeting guys. So I got pissed off. And she was like, what do you mean? I was with my girlfriend or my sister. I can't remember which one it was, but it was like clearly another woman. I don't even know what you're talking about, David. And so he tried to like spin it and turn it around on her that he did see her, but it was like something that she was doing that was screwed up. And that's why he drove away so fast was because he was angry. But she was like, okay, this is so unhealthy and you are turning around everything that I know to be true, which is I caught you in a lie and you're somehow turning this around on me and I don't feel safe in this relationship anymore. And she knew she wanted to get a divorce. She knew she wanted to move on with her life. But she also, she's a curious person and she wants to know exactly what this guy has been up to because she doesn't believe anything he's told her to this point. So she went to a private eye named Bob Brown. Now, Bob's an interesting guy. He had been a homicide detective for years and years before he became a private investigator. And one of the reasons for this was that when he was working as a homicide detective, he saw mostly domestic situations gone very, very badly. Okay. And he saw a lot of women who had been killed by partners or cases of infidelity that had gone fatal, just exactly like the cases we mostly cover And he thought that maybe as a private investigator, he could work for people before it gets that bad. He could get people like if they find out that somebody's cheating, he can manage to counsel them to get out of the relationship without a big confrontation or something like that. So that was really what drove him. And he did at that point, I think he had 11 people working for him. But he went on instinct about the cases he took. He is a Christian. So he was very... And I also found out that Karen Kingsbury is actually, she writes a lot of, I think, Christian fiction. This book, except for this one part about Bob, was not Christian-y. So I would not tell you guys if, if that's not your thing not to read this book because there's only a very small part that's at all Christian-y in this one. 
But if you look at her greater <laughs> work, just so you know, <laughs> just so you're prepared, I think some of the Christian readers were a little surprised by the true crime because there were some reviews that were very confused about this type of book. Yeah. <laughs> so he basically would what we call like intuition because we're not super duper religious, obviously. He would say it's from God. God would tell him what cases to take, essentially. And he met Jane and he's like, oh, my gosh, this is one case I have to handle myself. Like there's something here, even though it just seems like it's like, find out if my husband's cheating on me or there's lies he's not telling me, which is very run of the mill for PIs. Well, he said that after she gave him the rundown and everything she knew about her husband, it didn't even take him five minutes after she left to find out that the house in Castleberry was listed under a David and Dorothy Miller. And it seemed like they were married based on how it appeared on the deed. And his car was registered to both David and Dorothy Miller. And David's registration was current. So it meant that David had been currently married to Dorothy as recently as the month before. Wow. So when he told this to Jane, of course, she's like, well, he did mention that he had this girlfriend like a decade ago. Is it possible that they're not legally married, that this is some sort of common law situation or she was using his last name because they were living together but not married and some people look down on that? And he's like, it's possible, but I don't think so. He's like, my gut is telling me that that's not the case. I'm going to dig further into this to figure out like they didn't get married in Florida. That was for sure because he didn't find a marriage license. But he's like they could have gotten married somewhere else. He also didn't see any divorce decree. So he's trying to find out whether he's actually still married and therefore a bigamist because he's also legally married to Jane at this point. Between Bob and Jane's own snooping of David's belongings that were in the storage unit, they eventually found a Pennsylvania phone number that showed up on an old phone bill of his. So at that point, Bob said, do you want me to continue investigating? Because this is all the information that you've paid for thus far. But if you want me to call this number and find out where this other woman is, it's going to be more money. And she said, it's not about the money, but I think I have to do this myself. I'm going to call the number. I'm going to see what the deal is with this woman. Nine months later. Nine months after she met him and only... Less than seven months after she was married. I mean, that's symbolic as well. <laughs> it's crazy. So that was when she made that terrifying phone call and she introduced herself to the other Mrs. Miller. So who the hell is Dorothy? And while we are at it, just who the hell really is David? So once again, we're rewinding. And we are going to go back and give a brief history of David Miller before he had two wives and one seriously duplicitous double life. David was indeed born in a small town called Sardis in Ohio in 1950. He was a bright student who also did several sports. He was in lots of clubs, including some focused on civics and aiding the community. His parents, by the way, were both very much alive, including his father, who had not passed away and left him millions of dollars. Wow. I always think it's like really sick, tempting fate when anyone lies about a family member dying. Yeah, no, there's something wrong with you, for sure. David was known as a generally good kid growing up. He did not drink. He didn't do drugs. He seemed pretty focused on his future. And it wasn't until he went to college at Ohio University that he discovered his vices. 
namely lying and women. Away from his hometown, he realized he could be anything he wanted. He could say anything he wanted and people would believe him. I love that like Athens, Ohio was how he like broke out of his shell. (laughs) It was. Now your parents didn't go. They went to Ohio State, right? They went to Ohio State, which was in Columbus. Yeah, Athens is tiny. Yeah, that's really the place where he figured out he could lie. Well, I guess like Sardis at the time that he was growing up was like less than a thousand people. I don't even know where that is. Yeah, so I think it was a very, very small town. So this is where he realized that he could tell any story that he wanted. People would believe him. And he started getting away with a lot of things. Like it started with like little stuff. Like he wasn't supposed to enroll in two of a certain type of classes, but he did somehow when he was getting away with it. And then he started cheating on a girlfriend and telling her reasons why he wasn't around. And then he was getting away with it. And the... Getting away with the lies, the having people believe him no matter what he said, lying and getting away with it with professors, authority figures, girls he was tricking, that was more intoxicating to David than any drug could ever be. He loved the thrill of it. So what better career path is there for somebody with charm and the ability to boldface lie to your face? Probably sales. I was going to say politics, but yeah. That's probably also a good one. I wish I I had been a little bit more convincing in my lies and sales. I would have had a better career. (laughs) Same. (laughs) So he went into politics. After graduation, David moved to Washington, D.C. with an aim to someday run for office. But instead, he ended up in lobbying. He also, while he was in Washington, D.C., would go to these political get-togethers or mixers, and he would get photos taken with high-ranking public officials including one with President Gerald Ford. And while he's getting these pictures taken, he's thinking about how he can use them to bolster his lies. So he can say, oh, I work with the government. I'm actually in President Ford's whatever office. And he's like, here's a picture of me, which would seem to prove that back in the day when there wasn't Photoshop and all of these ways to fake this sort of stuff, it seemed very legit. So David did marry for the first time in 1975. It was a woman that he had met shortly after moving to Washington, D.C., who had her own political ambitions. But she left him after only two years because she got very sick of his lies, catching him in lies, hearing him exaggerate or embellish to other people when he didn't need to. It was just pathological. Like, he just could not tell the truth. So after his divorce... He moved to L.A. that same year, and he continued to work as a lobbyist. David got himself very involved with a senator in Sacramento who later was indicted on charges of extortion and fraudulent use of tax money. Wow. Yeah, and it sounds like he wasn't the only sketchy senator that David had worked with. Karen Kingsbury wrote in her book that it appeared that David involved himself with senators who, not long afterward, came under the scrutiny of investigators and eventually wound up in court. And so a theory began to circulate among a handful of people who thought they knew David. The theory had it that maybe those senators had needed somebody to carry out certain illegal activities, someone whose trail would not easily be traced, and one whom the authorities would never think to question. Someone, perhaps, in a position like David Miller. For such a job, a lobbyist might stand to make thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
this theory would certainly explain why David had the ability to spend money as if it was coming from a limitless supply. But Karen Kingsbury said that though there were lots of speculative theories about this, there was never any proof of a relationship between David and the crooked senators he worked for. They didn't find the money trail. Jesse, I genuinely did not know how much a pillowcase could make a difference in my life. That's because they didn't until you tried Blizzy. Yes, exactly. Who knew that a better pillowcase and for me, a better eye mask, because their eye mask is phenomenal for red eyes, could actually make for a better sleep all around. Let's talk about staying cool throughout the night and waking up with hydrated skin and hair. Oh my gosh, yes. With that beautiful, crisp fall weather coming in, there is nothing better than Blissey's award-winning 100% Mulberry Silk pillowcases for the perfect sleep. Blissey's silk pillowcases are temperature-regulating and have naturally insulating properties. So if you sweat and overheat while you sleep, Blissey is for you. It stays cool throughout the night so that you're not constantly waking up sweating around your neck or flipping the pillow to find the cooler side. On top of that, it's also so good for your hair because it reduces frizz, tangles, and prevents hair breakage. It keeps the moisture in your hair and keeps your skincare products and natural moisture on your skin because silk does not absorb the moisture off your face. You can say goodbye to wrinkles, dry, flaky, and red skin in the morning and wake up with healthier skin and hair. Trust me, there are a lot of dupes out there that claim satin can be an alternative to silk, but that is not the case. Satin is made from synthetic fibers like polyester, while silk is a luxurious, all-natural fiber. Because satin's synthetic, it also traps heat and moisture, so if you run warm, it pulls the sweat and heat around your face while you sleep. Silk, however, is more breathable, moisture-wicking, and gentle. It's also way more durable and long-lasting. Think of it as an investment in getting better sleep and waking up feeling ready to take on the day. Long before we had Blissey as a sponsor, I have to say that I was looking for a solution for my daughter Alden's hair. She has really curly hair, and she was waking up with lots of frizz because of that. And so I bought Blissey, and then I also bought an Amazon dupe. And it was not even close, the quality level. There's a lot of things Amazon dupes can do, but not this case, not with Blissey. Blissey pillowcases are made of 100% mulberry silk, which is naturally hypoallergenic. So you can sleep more comfortably without itching or rashes. So good for those with allergies. And unlike other silk pillowcases, these are of the highest quality silk and are machine washable, durable, and even have a zipper to hold your pillow in place. The machine washable is key. <laughs> it's also the perfect gift to give when you're looking for a gift for any occasion. Who doesn't love a gift they didn't even know they needed? Plus, it comes in gift-ready packaging they'll be sure to love. The packaging is gorgeous, and so is the customer support if you need any help whatsoever. Blissey Silk Pillowcases are the best silk pillowcases on the market. They have a ton of different prints and colors, and they make great gifts because there's an option for literally anyone. Men love them too. They have over 1.5 million raving fans, and you could be next. Try now risk-free for 60 nights at blissey.com slash lovemurder and get an additional 30% off. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash lovemurder. And use code LOVEMURDER to get an additional 30% off. Sleep cooler this fall with Blissey. After only one year in California, David was flying high. He had a nice place to live. He had a Jaguar with the vanity license plate that said Advocat. Oh, my God. 
again, he's not an attorney, by the way. He had gotten involved in the Granada Hills Chamber of Commerce. He ultimately ended up serving as president. Now, David had no desire to get married or settle down when there were so many beautiful women just waiting to be duped by him. However, that all changed one day in 1979 when he walked into a beauty salon to get a haircut from the lovely Dorothy Garofalo. Dorothy was the owner of the very successful salon. This was a salon that was based in the Valley, but it had a very wealthy clientele, and she had seven employees working for her at that point. So she was doing very well for herself. She was 31 years old, but author Karen Kingsbury described her as still looking as though she were in her early 20s. She was very youthful, very attractive. She was the single mother of three children. Dorothy had been raised in Belle Vernon, Pennsylvania, where she met her high school sweetheart, Archie. There's a, a lot of things in common between Jane and Dorothy because David had married a woman early and been divorced, but that was a woman he met in Washington after college. Yeah, yep, not high school, yeah. Versus Jane and Dorothy had both married their high school boyfriends. And had kids. They got married when they were 20. They had kids pretty much right away after that. They ended up having three children. They had a daughter named Brandy, and then they had sons, Michael and Tony, later on. During this period of time, it seemed like her husband's parents moved out to L.A., and that's how the family ended up out there as well, because I guess that her husband's family was helping with the kids. So Archie was the husband. He went into insurance sales, and she went to beauty school and then opened her own salon, and, and it ended up becoming very, very successful. Okay, cool. So nothing catastrophic happened during this relationship. There was no infidelity or big fights or anything. It sounds like they just eventually grew apart over the years. Again, it's a lot like Jane and her first marriage, although it sounds like there was maybe more fireworks in Jane's first marriage because they were on again, off again. With Archie and Dorothy, it just kind of sounds like they had married really young. It was the only person Dorothy had ever been with. I also have to believe that there's a lot of pressure in building a business and also raising three very young children. Yeah. It can really take a toll on a marriage. And it seems like at some point they ended up looking at each other more like partners in the child care and trying to maintain a household and not romantic partners any longer. So Dorothy ended up leaving Archie because... She wanted romance. She maybe had never been in love. Even with Archie, it was one of those things where everything seemed perfect. It seemed like the right thing to do all along. But she had never been swept off her feet at all. And she wanted a love story. Well, she believed she had found it the day David Miller walked into her salon for a haircut. He had arrived in a stretch limousine. This is 1979 too, so that is something else. And he had such an overwhelming confidence and strength that Dorothy felt something that she hadn't felt in a long, long time and maybe ever. She had that giddy, like breathless, like kind of don't even know what to say, butterflies feeling of a, an intense crush. Like she was totally sprung right from the get-go. That crush bloomed into a full-blown infatuation. And when David asked her out and they started to date, it did not take long before she was just full on head over heels in love with him. Makes sense. After several months together, David and Dorothy moved into a home with her children. By this time, David had opened his lobbying business, David Miller and Associates, which seemed partially legit. 
he might have had some illegal situations with various politicians that he worked with. But in general, there was also some above board lobbying work that he was doing as well. Good, good. You know, trade off. Yeah. So it seemed like money was just pouring in. They lived in a very nice house. They had nice things. But as devoted as David acted toward Dorothy, he could not shake his desire to lie and bed other women. He wanted Dorothy very far away from his professional life because he wanted the ability to still meet women when he's traveling or in political circles and sleep with them. He wanted to have the appearance of a single man. So none of his associates at his own business had ever even met Dorothy while they're living together. Wow. And in fact, he got nervous because one of the people in his circle, one of his colleagues or political friends, had actually recommended going to Dorothy's salon. So he was worried that she might be attracting people who knew him or like wives of people he worked with. So he told her essentially that they had to move to another house and that she needed to move her business. That's so hard to do with clients. Yeah. They ended up moving to Reseda. So she was already in the valley, but Reseda's even further out, right? Yeah. And a lot of her clients wouldn't come all the way to Reseda then. So she was put in a position where she had to start all over again. She definitely wasn't making the same type of money. But she did it because he said that he needed her to do it for his business and it was really important for them. And they had a bigger, nicer house out there. So there was a lot of trade-offs, but she was willing to make it. But eventually, after a couple years went by, she was beginning to get suspicious about the amount of nights out and business trips that David went on. He was just gone a lot of the time. So just about two years into their relationship, David sat Dorothy down and he told her that there was a big secret that he had been keeping from her. David wasn't really a lobbyist. It was simply his cover. For what? Andy, David worked for the CIA. No! He told Dorothy that he had been an agent for the last five years, that he was being sent on dangerous missions, both foreign and domestic. Okay. He sometimes was sent to procure certain information or people. David said that he had recently gotten a promotion, which means that he would be traveling even more. And the kicker was that on most of these missions, David would never be able to be in contact with her at all. Completely unreachable. Completely unreachable. And even once he returned, he wouldn't be able to talk about where he had been or what he had been doing because. It's classified. It's the perfect job for a liar. It's the perfect job for a liar and a cheater. So he sold this so well to Dorothy that she was totally 100% convinced that he was telling the truth. And I'm sure it helped that he had all of these pictures of himself with different presidents and senators. And he seemed extremely politically connected. And at this point, he's a professional liar. Let's be honest. He had spent time in Washington, D.C. He could say that's when he was recruited. All of this would kind of make sense if you were prone to believe him. I mean, it sounds crazy to us, but I can see how he would believe it. And he even told her, hey, you know, this is a really, really hard existence to be the partner of somebody who is a CIA agent and it's not fair to you. And I totally understand why maybe you don't want to be in this relationship any longer because I wouldn't want it 
if it was the other way around, if I never knew if you were safe, if I never knew what you were doing. I think it might be just too much to bear. And she said, quote, David, listen to me. I trust you completely. I won't ask questions. I won't wonder why you don't come home on time or where you are when you're gone longer than you said. If you can put your life on the line for this country, the least I can do is wait here until you return. Okay, angel. I know. She's a total angel. So Dorothy was everything that David had ever wanted in a woman. She was attractive. She was successful in her own right. She was caring and she was willing to believe everything he said and not ask questions. In 1984, after they had been together for about five years, he upped the ante by proposing to Dorothy and the two eloped in Las Vegas that same year. In fact, he got married to Dorothy at the exact same chapel that he got married to Jane some seven years later. Yeah, he probably got off on that. And stayed in the same hotel for their first night as a married couple. Wow. A scumbag. Yeah, it did seem like David loved Dorothy in some ways, but he definitely got off on the fact that he had these two very separate lives and that nobody knew he was married. And she now never questioned what he was doing or where he was going or why she could not meet any of his colleagues because it's all CIA. Now, not everyone was excited about Dorothy and David getting married. It sounds like Dorothy's parents liked David. So they believed what Dorothy was telling them as well. And it seemed like the two younger sons also got along with David very well. However, her teenage daughter, or I think Brandy was still very little when they first got together, but then by the time they were married some five years into their relationship, Brandy was like a 12 or 13 at that point, and she absolutely despised David. First of all, Brandy's gut instinct was screaming at her that her stepfather was a liar. So her mother and her two little brothers were buying everything he was saying. She did not believe him. It's a hard place to be. I know how that is. Yes. And she saw a different side of him, too. It was like his mask dropped sometimes with her. And she tried one time to tell her mother because he spoke to her in a very emotionally abusive way. And later on, he even gets physical with Brandy when her mom's not around. And the first time that it happened, her mom didn't believe her because David had already told her another story. And so she's feeling very isolated very alone. And it got even worse because she had spent basically her entire life in California. And that's also where her dad and paternal grandparents were. And in 1989, David moved the family to Orlando, Florida. So he told Dorothy that they had to move to Florida for their safety, that apparently terrorists had discovered their address and were tracing them in California. And the CIA would be better equipped to protect them in Florida. And besides, he was having missions to Guam now. And it would be easier for him to get where he needed to go from Florida. So once again, she shuts up her store, her beauty shop, and travels there, leaves everything in the California home because he says the CIA will help us pack and move things pulls her kids out of school mid-school year. And Brandy, of course, now is more isolated. But what was really happening, why he was doing this, was that one of the senators David worked with was under investigation and trying to 
manage the stress and his double life was really getting to David at that point. He wanted Dorothy and that part of his life very far away at that point. I'm also imagining that cost of living must have been lower in Florida than California. So I think he's trying to think of that. And he's also just needing her to be away, essentially. Obviously, this man is a narcissistic sociopath who thinks of no one but himself because he's not thinking about how this is going to affect his wife, her three children that have been jerked around. Zero consideration. Well, luckily, Dorothy befriended a pair of neighbors in Florida, the Merritts, and she would say that they really kept her sane. She was lucky enough to make some friends in this community, and that really kept her from divorcing David and starting a new life. Because as the next year or so went on, things were getting worse. With the senator going down, which she knew nothing about, by the way, it seemed like David's cash flow was drying up. So back at David Miller & Associates, he began to tell creditors and lenders and people who had given him money and just on loans as a friend that he had cancer. So he is living in that cancer lie. There's one of his former business associates is on the A Lie to Die For show as well, talking about how he believed him that he had told him he had cancer and he was going through treatments. How would you not believe someone that says something as horrible as that? You would, of course, believe them. Always. So he is now fleecing people and taking their money, saying that he needs it for experimental cancer treatments that his insurance doesn't cover and he needs help. But then he's flying around the world and doing other things that are so questionable and he doesn't look like he has cancer. So people are starting to suspect him and also his employees' paychecks are starting to bounce. As his financial situation worsened, David started getting really ugly. He started taking out his frustration on Brandy. In late 1989, she wrote the following journal entries, which is just devastating to hear this poor girl and also abuse of a child in this. Monday, September 4th, 1989. I'm so tired. It's only 9.30 and I'm exhausted. Mom wasn't home and I got into an argument with David. As usual, I got my butt kicked again. There's a huge bruise on my arm. It hurts so bad. I guess I'll be wearing a long sleeve shirt again to hide the bruises. I wish I was dead right now. And on October 18th, Brandy wrote about an incident that was so severe that she started to worry that David might kill her. October 18th, 1989. I'm so confused. I think I might need some real help. My grades are down, most of them. I wish I could talk to my mom and just tell her the way I really feel, how I don't care about my life anymore and how scared I am of David but she would probably turn it all around and start a fight. God, I'm so scared. I'm terrified that one time David will hurt me really bad or even kill me if he gets mad enough. This sucks. I can't even talk to my own mother. I don't know what to do. I'm so scared. I feel like my heart is stopping. I'm just dying inside. Eventually, I'm going to have to talk to her. I'm just scared. I thought about writing her a letter, but the same thing would happen. She doesn't understand what's happening to me and what David is doing. God, I'm so scared. Why, David? (sighs) Heartbreaking. Brandy did everything she could to advocate for herself. She ended up going to CPS herself, but David was so convincing that when they came and spoke to David and Dorothy and looked at the home, they believed it was just an act of a teenager rebelling or trying to get revenge on a stepfather she didn't like very much. So that's how convincing he was, guys. Like, we can talk about how everyone's swallowing all these lies and that seems ridiculous and how could they have believed this, but like, 
CPS is believing his shit right now too. Eventually she was so out of options that she got like a secret part-time job, saved her money and got a plane ticket back to California. Wow. And so now Dorothy was actually upset with David for the first time ever because she knew that they had a bad relationship. She did not know the extent of the abuse at all, but she knew that something had happened between them. And so now she's like, my daughter's missing and it's because of you. You have created this terrible atmosphere for my child. Now she's gone. And luckily she was discovered in California. But when her father came to get her and saw her bruises and was told what her mother's husband was doing, he was like, you're absolutely not going back. And she didn't want to go back. And so Dorothy basically said, that's fine. She can live with her father now. So she has, for all intents and purposes, lost her daughter now. Meanwhile, while this is all happening, so he's ruining everything in Dorothy's life. He's rapidly running out of money. It doesn't sound like he's working on his business at all because he's spending so much time in Florida now. He was also going off the deep end. You know how sometimes when things are bad and people double down on whatever their addiction is, if they do drugs or drink, they just start going on benders when they're stressed. Other people gamble. Well, this guy liked womanizing and lying. So when he was under pressure, he started womanizing and lying. Lots, lots more. He even briefly got engaged in late 1990 before thinking better of it and calling it off. However, the next woman he romanced would not be so lucky. That would be beautiful Jane, who had the misfortune of sitting next to David on an early morning New Year's Day flight in 1991. So David was coming off of Christmas where he had been with his wife and the two young boys he considered sons. But of course, he had told Jane that he was visiting his sister for the holiday, of course. And that was when... They spent the entire flight chatting, and when Jane stepped off that flight, she was already mesmerized by David. So that's what was really going on in David's life. Yeah. Up until the point when he met Jane. Well, fast forward to September, that very same year. This is all happening in nine months. Jane was very disenchanted with her husband. Now, Jane is a very stubborn, strong, and smart woman who questions the status quo. And she was very good at demanding what she deserved and demanding the truth. Mm -hmm. Whereas like Dorothy is more trusting and loving and passive. So that was the only reason that David could stay with Dorothy that long was because she did not question anything that was going on. Yep. But he found himself in a situation with Jane where he was with a woman who questioned everything. And that was not going to fly for David. David had moved Jane to Florida, not because he wanted her to be closer to her family. It was because he was having a hard time having two full-on life partners. And he thought it would be easier if both of the women were in the greater Orlando area because then he could say he was on a business trip, but really he'd just be across town. Yep. Yep. So that was the reason he had moved Jane to Florida. And he has all his guns there. And he has all of his guns there. But of course, as soon as he moved Jane there, he started living in terror of the two of the women crossing paths or the fact that he would, might be with one of the women when he's supposed to be away and then the other one would see him. So he realizes very quickly that this was a very stupid idea because now he's terrified of being caught constantly. So in April of 1991, 
David told Dorothy that once again, their location had been compromised and terrorists were coming to get them. He did it in such a way that he came home like screaming, being like, where are the boys? Where are the boys right now? We are in danger right now. He's like, the CIA has intercepted a message that we have been compromised. In fact, there's a hit out on me and our entire family. He's like, we have to immediately leave. So he got her on a plane. He's like, just pack up the fastest things you can grab. We have to get to the airport ASAP. And he's like, we're going to move you to Pennsylvania so you can be near your family. He's like, the missions are getting more dangerous. And if I don't come back, I want you to be near loved ones. Oh, my God. But don't worry. The government will always take care of you. So she's terrified. And she doesn't even have time to rationally think this out because he's telling her that right now their lives are in danger. So once again, boys plucked out of school, whole family overnight moves their whole life to Pennsylvania. And that's why the house in Castleberry was empty, was empty, but full of people's stuff. Oh my God. Yeah. So this dumbass obviously could not get a house because he had terrible credit and he really didn't have any money. So you can put a lot of these fancy trips and restaurants on credit cards you can't put a up house. to a certain point, yeah. but you cannot buy a house on a credit card. So he was not managing to get the house and he knew he was losing Jane. So he's like, win-win, they're out of the house. I can move Jane into this house. The only thing is, though, that she was genuinely very good friends with the neighbors, the Merritts. So when this dumbass brought Jane over to the house, he thought that the Merritts usually traveled for all of June and July because that's like the muggy time in Florida. And so he did not think they were going to be home. But when he went to go show Jane the house, he got out of the car. He's kissing her. He's like showing her around the place. And all of a sudden he looks over and Merritt is there, the neighbor. And she's like, uh, excuse me? And she's like watching this man with this other woman after she knows that he's been married to Dorothy for years. Wow. And so that is why they never went back to the house when he's like, oh, the tenants came back. And he did actually end up getting renters for that house to try to make some money. But he realized they could not live there, obviously. This is all going on behind the story. So Jane only knows the one thing. And now I'm filling you guys in on what was going on on Dorothy's side. And now this neighbor calls Dorothy and is telling her, I saw your husband with somebody. And she was like, what? And now she's like, well, maybe it has something to do with the CIA. Maybe it's another agent. Maybe there's something going on here. But she can't get a, a hold of him. He's totally unreachable. So she can't even get a hold of him to ask him about this. And then all of a sudden, she also starts getting these crazy credit card bills. So they are actually going to Dorothy's home in David's name. Oh, no. She sees that all of their credit cards are totally maxed out. The things that are being charged are insane. Thousands of dollars of furniture. There's so many cash advances. There's lingerie, nice restaurants, European vacations, and even the Caribbean cruise, the beautiful honeymoon cruise. She knows that she wasn't going on any of those trips. She wasn't getting any lingerie. What the hell is going on? So when David finally got back in touch with her, he had an answer for all of it, of course. He said that he had taken a cruise to throw the terrorists off his scent. I love that for him. (laughs) (laughs) He said that the CIA thought that these terrorists had hired someone to kill me. They thought that the killer was following me based on where I was using my government credit card. So now they wanted me to use my private cards. 
And he promised her that they would be reimbursing him any day now. They just wanted to make sure that he was putting all these charges of him having these decoy vacations on his personal card. Wow. Dorothy's like, okay, none of this makes sense. I didn't know that the CIA made you pay for your own uh, cruises when you're undercover. (laughs) Undercover cruise sounds like a bad early 90s movie. (laughs) Undercover Caribbean cruise. It sounds like a Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen flick. (laughs) It really does. Gosh, we should be so lucky. We need to have a love murder undercover cruise where we just cruise with all the lovers and try to solve crimes on the Lido deck. (laughs) So crazy. So Dorothy was not really believing this, but there's that part of you when you love your partner and you've been together for a long time that you want to believe it. She's trying to push off her doubt and continue to believe her husband. But then no one ever did pay the credit card bills. And now the credit card companies are calling her. She's trying to say, it's not my husband's signature. It's like something totally different. They're like, "Uh, yes, it's totally him. We have his signature on file. He's definitely the one that's making all these charges and you need to pay the bill. And then the unthinkable happened. David had always provided for the family. She had always had more than enough money in this shared banking account that they had. And one day, one of her checks bounce and she goes to the bank and they tell her that the account has been closed, that David actually withdrew every last penny from the account and closed it. And Dorothy, of course, has no job because she has been moved from place to place and did not even know if she was going to be settling in Pennsylvania for long because who knows with this guy. And he had always told her he would take care of her and her sons. So now she has all of these credit cards that had been run up to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars. No money, no way to get any money, no way to contact David. And she's totally broke and having to take care of herself and two children. Yeah. So at this point, she had been with David for 12 years and married to him for seven. And she doesn't know what to do. So she does something that he told her never to do before, which was contact the CIA. Okay. But she said, I don't have any other choice. I can't live like this. So she gets through to the CIA office in Miami. And the first thing they tell her is that there's no such thing as an Orlando office. They don't have an Orlando office, which he had told her that they had. And that was the office he worked for. Because she's like, he's, my husband David's in the Orlando office. They're like, uh, there's no such office. So then she's talking to the person who answers the phone in Miami and they haven't heard of him. But the receptionist or whoever was answering the phones felt really bad for her because she was clearly very upset They took an entire report on what her husband had said to her, where he said he was working, what was going on. And they said, look, we will double check to see if there's anybody who's undercover or something or for whatever reason. And we will get back to you or have your husband get in touch with you if this is indeed the case. So six days pass and she finally gets a letter and it's from the CIA and The letter clearly states that David Miller did not work for the CIA and had, in fact, never worked for the CIA. The agent thanked her for her inquiry and apologized for not being able to locate her husband for her. And the last line of the letter made Dorothy burst into tears. The agent wrote, apparently you are married to a con man. Well, Dorothy was filing for bankruptcy because she owed $50,000 right now because of all the credit card bills and what was going on. 
She also was trying to get a job as a hairstylist, and she was generally putting her life back together in Pennsylvania. So what was David doing during all of this time? Well, he's not abusing Jane. David had moved in with yet a third woman named Hilda. Oh, my God. So I think that he knew this woman in some capacity from his lobbying business. She had started her own company, but it was something along the lines of something David could help out with. He had like inserted himself in her life in some sort of professional capacity and then managed to seduce her and then managed to get her to give him a job at her company and then told her that I don't have anywhere to live because I'm going through a divorce right now. Yeah. So my wife's kicked me out of the house and she was like, well, of course, live with me, work with me, we'll get you back on your feet. So he is now with this third woman. But while he's living with her and totally ghosting his wife of seven years, Dorothy, up in Pennsylvania, he's also still calling Jane, harassing her, begging for her to give him another chance. He also called Dorothy in Pennsylvania in the late summer as well. And this was weeks and weeks after he had just left Dorothy penniless. And Dorothy said that she was done. She was like, I'm done with you. I know you don't work for the CIA. You have left me completely broke. You have been lying to me for over a decade. I don't even know what to do with you, but I'm done. We are going to get divorced. And also, I'm thinking about calling the police on you because he did basically steal money from them as a couple. And he left her with all his credit card bills that she didn't make those purchases. And so when she said something about going to the police, David became extremely cold. And he said, listen to me, Dorothy, you talk to the police and I'll kill you. Yep, that sounds right. I mean it. I'll kill you. She was so shaken because the tone of his voice suggested he really meant it. But Dorothy's a tough cookie too, and she got a recording system for her phone. Good girl. She said, I didn't get him threatening me that time, but any other time he calls, I will. Good. And he did. He called her back, and he threatened her again about the police situation, and that time she got it on tape. And she put it right in an envelope and sent it right to the police. Yeah. He doesn't want to get caught. He's gotten away with so much his whole life. Like, he does not want to get caught. That's going to be the ultimate failure for him is not devastating and disappointing these women. It is somehow having a public comeuppance. It's about being revealed as the con man and the liar that he really is. Because his getting off was getting away with it. Yep. Totally. So the next phone call that Dorothy received that pulled her back into this muck was from Jane in early September. Now, Dorothy had heard of Jane from her neighbor friend, obviously. But now when they talked, she had concrete proof that her husband was a bigamist. I think somewhere deep down, both of these women didn't want to believe that this was the case, that he was having these two marriages concurrently. And this conversation was deeply upsetting to both of the women for obvious reasons. I think somewhere Jane had hoped that maybe Dorothy and David were separated but not legally divorced and they really didn't have much of a marriage. Of course. And Dorothy's like, no, he was visiting me all those times he said he was on business trips and we were very intimate. So she's finding that out. And of course, Dorothy's finding out that while she thought her husband was on these secret missions and she was worried for his life and like settling with not having a lot of money herself and moving around at his behest, he was like off on these cruises and treating Jane, his new wife, to all these wonderful things and buying her jewelry. So this is a gut punch for both women. Of course. They also found out that he had married them in the same place, (laughs) which is just a kick in the balls. 
But neither of the women blamed each other. I love that. Yeah, they were very on each other's team. They decided to band together and file charges of bigamy. They wanted to be together in the courtroom and stand against their husband. And if the story ended here, I feel like I could imagine like Dorothy and Jane like starting a all ladies detective agency to catch cheating spouses yes. together. Yes. You know, at least living it up some first wives club style. But sadly, unfortunately, it does not end here. <sighs> a couple weeks after David's bigamy came to light, Jane was preparing to move back to LA. She was going to her public storage unit to empty out her belongings. And she told David that she would set his stuff outside the storage unit to pick up because she wasn't going to be paying for the unit any longer when she moved. Yeah, get your stuff, bitch. Get your stuff, bitch, essentially. Yep. Both Bob and Dorothy had warned Jane not to give David this information at all, where she was going to be and when she was going to be there, not to see him under any circumstances because Bob knew what men like this were capable of and Dorothy was still reeling from David's death threats. But Jane wanted the confrontation. She wanted David to look her in the face and she wanted to be able to say to him, I know what you did and I'm done with you and wait till you get yours. At 2.45 p.m. on September 15th, 1991, a man named Jason struck up a conversation with the pretty woman at the next unit at the U Store It on Orlando Drive. This was, of course, Jane. He asked her if she was moving, and she explained that she was removing her husband's things from her storage unit because they were going through a divorce. Okay. But then she said, it's really nice to meet you, but I got to get moving because I, I need all of his stuff out of here at three. So Jason was still in his unit 15 minutes later when David arrived, and he and Jane began loudly fighting. Jason was close enough to hear what they were saying. Jane told David that she knew that he was married to another woman and that he was a con man. Can you imagine overhearing that drama? <laughs> juicy. He's like, uh. He was trying to stay in his unit and like do whatever organizational thing he was doing because he's like, I don't want to go out and look at them. And David started calling her names and saying, well, how stupid are you that you married me? And Jane told him she was getting angry because he was calling her names and saying that she was dumb. And Jane was like, well, you know what? I'm not just going to the police about this, but I will be filing charges of bigamy. I'm going to go to the press. I'm going to tell everyone what she did. I'm going to make this a big story and all your political bigwigs and everyone you've ever worked with is going to know what a lying cheat you are. You'll be ruined, David. Ruined, she screamed. Jason's overhearing all this. Yeah. And those walls are like fake. It's like a two by four. <laughs> yeah. Sheet. So David responded really viciously. He was, it sounded like getting closer to Jane. He was telling her how she had ruined his life, how ungrateful she was. Around this point, two guys who also worked for Hilda, who were essentially David's coworkers, showed up to help David with his belongings because he had asked if two of his coworkers could come because they had a truck and help him move his stuff. So they get on the scene and they're like, shit, he's really fighting with his ex-wife. Now, this is totally in line with what he's told Hilda, that he's getting a divorce. It's not great. So they see the pile of stuff that's next to David and they're like, let's just start moving it into the truck so we can get the hell out of here because this is going very badly. So those two guys are there. And of course, Jason's in the next unit and they start moving the stuff. And Jason in the next unit by now is starting to get worried about Jane because David sounds really scary and angry. He says that he stuck his head out to make sure that she was okay, and he saw her climb into her car, and he felt relief at that point. He's like, okay, good. She's leaving. She's out of here. However, at the very same time, the two other guys, and one of the guys' name is Jeremy, 
he watches David reach into the car and punch Jane right in the face. Oh, my God. So now he's, like, literally, like, dropping what he's carrying and, and is, like, what the fuck is going on? And Jane literally, like, falls out of her car and her nose is bleeding. Oh, my God. And she's, like, what did you do to me, David? Oh, my God. David, no. And she's, like, I'm going to call the police. So she starts, like, crawling back into her car and trying to, like, she's shaking put on her seatbelt, get the key in the ignition and get out of there. And in horror, like this all happens within like 30 seconds. David goes to his car where he had the passenger side window was open. He reaches in and he grabs a nine millimeter gun. And so all of a sudden he's walking towards Jane and Jane is trying to reverse her car at this point desperately to get out of where she's parked in the storage area. And as she's doing this, he manages to get next to her and shoot her through the window seven times in a row in front of Jason and his two coworkers. All are witnesses to this. Just bam, 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 bam. And they're just stunned. And now Jason, of course, they all like dive for cover. And then Jeremy, his coworker, gets up and just runs at David, who, who was looking at her and he shot her one more time. And then David managed, he's like counting the bullets. He's like, okay, I'm going to go now. And he disarmed David. So he grabs David, he disarms him. And then as soon as he has a gun, he's like, okay, we got to help her. We got to help her. So he's calling for Jason also to come help her and get rid of the glass and like try to get at her through the window. Yeah, but she's been shot seven times. Yeah. And then, so he goes back to his car and he used the vehicle's dispatch system to call 911 from his car. Yeah. I feel like those were those old buttons, don't you remember, that were on the roof? Yeah, like, like the, the call red. for yeah. help buttons. Yep. My car might still have that. Yeah. I think it's like a if you're stuck somewhere and there's no cell service, it can like track where the car is. Yep. So he and Jason then raced over to the car to help Jane. She had taken most of the bullets to her chest and her neck. There was one bullet that had gone through her cheek. So she was immediately disfigured. And her breath was like rattling. So they were trying to like try to sit her up to help her breathe. And at this point, she still had a very faint pulse. So while they're trying to ascertain whether it's even at all possible that she could survive this, David was over, still there, but now disarmed. And he said, well, is she dead or what? Oh, my God. And they both remembered it very clearly. At 345, he wandered out to the you store it manager and said, you should call 911. My wife has been shot. She's probably dead. By me. Yeah, he didn't mention that. That's when the manager called and he said, they said, yes, there's somebody on the way. Somebody's already called. And David just wandered off down the street and then sat on the pavement until the police came and got him. So the paramedics arrived and they really did their damnedest, but it was to no avail. Jane was dead before they even arrived. So no one in Jane's family obviously had liked David, but no one had expected this. This was a shocking outcome. You think that this guy's just a loser. He's a con man. You don't think that this person was actually dangerous. Yeah. So this was a heartbreaking loss. It was, the way that Karen Kingsbury wrote about it was really sad too because they were like, you don't just see the woman she was. You see the little girl learning to walk. You see her first communion or her graduation from high school, the, the first wedding that the father walked her down the aisle. All of those moments come to you in a flash. It's not just no the loss of a 33-year-old woman's life. It's the loss of your baby. And they were just stunned by this. It just all had happened so fast. And there was one person who knew what David was capable of, and that was Dorothy. But she didn't get a call until the day after from the PI, Bob Brown. 
And Dorothy was so shaken that she had to end up taking like that week off of work because she was trying to reconcile this fact. She was with this man for 12 years. She also realized, number one, that Brandy, her daughter, had been right all along and she had never listened to her, which made her feel so bad. And number two, that it could have so easily been her. Yep. David's trial kicked off in December of 1992, not even two years since David had first laid eyes on Jane. The prosecution argued that David had killed Jane to prevent her from exposing his double life and bigamy. The defense argued that David was not guilty due to insanity. They had an expert witness who was a psychiatrist who said that David's mental conditions, including narcissism and depression, when put into a high-stress situation, had led to a split personality and a blackout at the time of the murder. Uh, mm-hmm. The defense... So they had one psychiatrist who was willing to testify, and that was basically their whole argument. So this psychiatrist said, it is my opinion that David Miller does not remember the events leading up to and during the murder of his wife. Without such knowledge of the events, he could not have been aware of his actions or whether they were right or wrong. He was, therefore, legally insane at the time of the murder. The prosecution offered a bunch of different psychiatrists that had also interviewed David and believed at the time of the murder he absolutely knew right from wrong. He just did not care. The hardest part of the trial for the prosecutor was proving that this was first-degree murder, that this was premeditated, because obviously this seems like a big crime of passion and anger, or else why would he invite two people to be witnesses to it? Yeah, but... But he also brought the gun. And that's essentially what... It was Marianne Klein who was the prosecutor, and that's essentially what she argued, which was the legal definition of premeditation does not mean that somebody had to think about this for a week. It didn't mean they had to even think about it for a day. She said, quote, some people might need only a few seconds to decide if they want to kill someone. In Mr. Miller's case, he had at least 30 seconds. And then this is what she said in her closing that was very powerful. You have heard eyewitness testimony that it took 30 seconds for David Miller to pick up the loaded gun from the front seat of his car and walk 44 feet to the place where he began shooting. In the courtroom, she measured out 44 feet, the distance David Miller walked from his car to Jane's. And she said she went there and she said, there are 44 feet between where I'm standing right now and you in the jury box. I am going to walk that distance and I want each of you to imagine if Mr. Miller might have had enough time to make the decision to murder. And she said, if it pleases your honor, I would like perfect silence for the next 30 seconds. And each second ticked methodically off the clock as Marianne stood motionless, still holding the gun at her side. So she also has a gun. Yeah. When 15 seconds passed, the jurors began to move around uncomfortably in their seats. Finally, 30 seconds had gone by. And she said, I believe that is long enough to formulate intent. Imagine how it must have been, what the defendant must have been thinking as he took 30 seconds to walk those final 44 feet. Then she started pointing the gun at the jurors and walking towards them and screaming, you're not going to ruin me. I'll get you for this, like 10 feet, then 20. I'll kill you, 30 feet. You'll never threaten me again and you won't live to tell anyone the truth. She was screaming at the top of her lungs and then she got to the jury box and kept the gun pointed at the jurors. And Karen Kingsbury wrote that suddenly every juror could feel like what it must have felt like to be Jane. Yes. And how terrifying that was and how much time he had to make that decision. 
And that's how she rested her case. She was like, the prosecutor rested. It was like, I'm getting the chills. It's, it must have been insane to be there in the courtroom. And she even said that she's not usually prone to theatrics, but she needed them to see. It's not theatrics. That's what actually happened. Yeah. So the jury needed less than three hours to come to a verdict. What do you think that verdict was? Very guilty. Yes. Guilty of first degree murder. David was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Jane's loved ones have thus far made sure that David remains in prison. Jody is on one of the shows talking about how nervous she was to speak at his first parole hearing, but he was not granted parole. He is still in prison at the time of this recording. He is now 73 years old, and there is a decent chance that David will die in prison. Yeah, especially with her family fighting for it. Oh, they're never going to give up. They're going to go to every parole hearing and make sure he stays where he belongs. Dorothy reconnected with her daughter Brandy and rebuilt their relationship. And she has since rebuilt a beautiful life for herself as well. Jody still grieves the loss of her best friend. To honor her, she named her own daughter Jane with a Y. Oh. And she said, because just like her best friend, her daughter is also no plain Jane. <laughs> oh, I know. It's so sad. I do have a Wikipedia fun fact. Wikipedia fun fact. The 1996 Lifetime movie about this case, which you can watch, I think it's on Freebie on Prime, so I think you can watch it for free no matter where you are, is called Every Woman's Dream, and it stars a brunette Kim Cattrall as Jane. Ooh. Yes, she's very good. And while I was watching, so I put it on, I always put it on in the background when I'm doing other stuff, because you you're not going to get any real information from the Lifetime movies, they're just kind of silly. A familiar name popped up as the screenplay writer, William H. Macy. Oh my God. Wrote Lol. the screenplay for this Lifetime movie. He was like one of three writers. It turns out William H. Macy of shameless fame. I went to his IMDb and he does have writing credits. He wrote a couple true crime Lifetime movies back in the early 90s. Hilarious. So funny. Yeah. In conclusion, I think that we should always be skeptical if our partner tells us that they have a job that requires them to be away for long periods of time, never have any reliability, and you can't ask any questions ever about where they've been. And just a cherry on top, if they tell you that they had to go on a CIA cruise and put it on your personal credit card <laughs> and that the government will refund you, I would say that's also a huge red flag. <laughs> huge red flag. <laughs> And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up married to a bigamist. <laughs> Bye. 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 